Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, or use AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I'm your host, Andre Karenkov. In this episode, I'm excited to be interviewing Rosan Liu. Rosan Liu is a research scientist at Google Brain and co-founder and executive director of ML Collective, a nonprofit organization for open collaboration and accessible mentorship. Before that, she was a founding member of Uber AI. Outside of research, she supports underrepresented communities and organizes symposiums, workshop, and a weekly reading group titled Deep Learning, Classics, and Trends since 2018. She is currently focused on thinking how to democratize AI research even more and improve the diversity and fairness of the field while working on multiple fronts of machine learning, including understanding training dynamics, rethinking model capacity, and scaling. So this should be really interesting. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Roseanne. Thank you for having me, Andre. Alrighty. And uh, yeah, as always, we begin with a bit of background. So could you just let us know how you first got interested in AI and sort of got into doing AI research? Uh, yeah, so I was on a rather traditional path. That is, I'm just a trained researcher by going to grad school. After um, undergrad, I went directly into grad school, had a really long grad school training out of um misfortune that I, I keep disliking what I was working on. So I kept mm. switching. Uh, I was I spent almost a decade in grad school. Uh, but, but I consider that part of sort of the traditional training. Mm-hmm. And also I never stopped uh, research training in the sense that my first job and the second job and now third job are all very research related. So I thought of myself as never been out of the training sort of always in the AI research domain. Um, it was always kind of like data related. So the whole topic of AI has been rebranded a few times. When I started, um, I think it was more called data mining. There might be mm-hmm. AI going on, but because it was so unpopular, I think mostly people use data mining, social network mining, if you're doing social network stuff, those terms are more popular and hotter and easier to sell because eventually Research is just like a selling business. You want your paper to be picked up. You want to mm-hmm. use buzzwords like that. Um, and then later on, it's more machine learning. Uh, and then I think in the middle of my second PhD, AI has become a bigger term. So some of my our papers will be selling it as AI. But it's similar stuff. But I've seen this rebranding going on a few times. Mm, makes sense. And did you first get interested in sort of the world of AI during your master's or during your PhD? I know your first papers come out in around 2010, so before all this deep learning hype <laughs> got going. I know, and it was published at, did you check where it was published? I have not, <laughs> no. It was published at a journal called International Joint Conference of Neural Networks. Oh. It, was very, it was a very small journal, no, sorry, conference. No one would notice it. Um, I think that's why we got to publish there because it was very easy, relatively easy. But it's just mm. about neural networks. Uh, back then, we were training neural networks with MATLAB. Um, but I feel like it's hard for me to say that I got interested in it because I was, um, like many people coming to U.S., 
a very unprivileged researcher in the sense that I don't have a freedom to choose. I was mm. just applying to grad school, see which one picks me, and I'll just join whichever lab that offers me financial aid and, um, you know, admission. Mm. So it's, it's really uh, not really my choice. I happened to be meeting with a professor. She uh, was interested in your networks and I didn't object to it. But um, yeah, like many people that came to U.S. through grad school, I feel like our first criteria was that anywhere that, you know, accepts us mm -hmm. so that was part of that uh well it seems like fortunately you uh you know stuck around with ai research so it must have been uh you know yeah it's a lot of it's a lot of luck I, I did choose to be in engineering so in computer mm -hmm. science so that was a sort of a deliberate choice in my undergrad but after that i feel like it was a lot of luck a lot of just like whoever i bump into um and a lot of things can be roughly categorized under the same umbrella of AI research, but we've done mm -hmm. uh, different things. I've done research with hybrid vehicles. So back then hybrid was a big topic that was before electric cars, I think. Um, and yeah, we like tried to design a controller, how to optimize the energy flow. So with hybrid, you have two sources of energy. There's battery, there's engine. I used to know more about this stuff. So now I can just talk in abstract terms. Of but course, so, yeah. so it poses a very interesting research problem of how to optimize it. And so that it saves fuel. So we did a lot of that. Again, it was not out of my choice. It was because we had a relationship with this motor company on, and our, our lab was, was in Michigan. That was where all the con car companies at. So it just, mm. I, I got into it. It's more feel like for more like a job than a deliberately yeah. chosen research topic. That makes but sense. I, yeah. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I've had some of that in my own experience when there's a grant and you, uh, may be requested to do something in the, you know, along the lines of what there's funding for. So it definitely happens. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's why when I heard a lot of interviews about people, how they chose their path, I was feel like. You probably chose some part of it, but it's never mm. all of it. It's a lot of things depends on the chance, the opportunities that were present to you. And a lot of times we don't get to choose or at least mm -hmm. me, I don't get, I didn't get to choose at all. Yeah, that's interesting. And, uh, I guess related to that, uh, jumping forward in time to your, you know, most more recent experience, you had a very interesting talk, uh, titled AI research, the unreasonably narrow path and how not to be miserable, uh, which shares a lot of sort of your experience and perceptions of, you know, AI research and how to have a decent path on it. So could you just share sort of what a summary of that talk for the listeners? Uh, yeah, so it was a random, random chance. So I was invited to give a talk at Google. Back then I was not working at Google. I was just running uh, my, my company, ML Collective. I'm still running that. And it's, it's one of those talks that usually people just go and present a paper of theirs. I think that was the expectation of my talk as well. But of mm -hmm. course, they would say that you can also talk about anything you want. As mm -hmm. There's lots of freedom. So I think like just the night before, I just had this know, strange energy that just <laughs> prompted me to talk about something different because I am, I'm easily bored a person. I don't like to repeat things. And if something's been done by a lot of people, 
or by myself. I just don't want to do it again. And I, mm. I've been having these observations of this research field for a long time. Things are going wrong and, and um, people are having lots of miseries around me and no one's talking about it. So the talk was made, I think, within like two or three hours before the talk. And I probably put all-nighter, I don't remember, but I slept mm -hmm. very little. I was very nervous around it. It was the oh. first time that it was made and I was talking about that topic for the very first time. Mm. And yeah, I gave it and didn't think much about it afterwards. But then the next morning I woke up to a hundred emails from mm -hmm. Google, uh, Googlers, because that was an internal talk back then. So Googlers saw the talk, they all sent me emails, basically saying how much they can relate to the topic that I talked about. Uh, only a year later, the talk was released to the public. And then I received another wave of emails from people saying that they share the same um, misery and, and appreciate, mostly appreciate that I talked about this. There's some angry emails too are saying, you know, you know, you're just talking, you know, solving the problem, but mostly mm -hmm. appreciation emails. So I appreciate that. Um, for the content is mostly um, a few problems I was pointing out that the field that exists in the field, mostly related to how we evaluate researchers, what we celebrate as good research, what we celebrate as good researchers, um, how the th all the criteria are overly stiff and mm. all the rubric that we're setting up are um, overly narrow. So people are sort of pushed into this very narrow mindset and it's very easy to be unhappy when you have a narrow mindset, because if you regard one thing and one thing only as the goal to reach, to be happy or to be successful, there's just like a million ways that you can be away from that goal. <laughs> you can feel miserable around it. Um, yeah, basically it's, it's that kind of topic. Uh, mm -hmm. The talk is an hour, but you only need to watch the first 30 minutes. The second half is a paper because back then I still feel really insecure of talking about non-research stuff for a whole hour. So I squeezed in like a paper of mine. And then in the end, I, I go back saying, that's why I squeezed in that technical part of, uh, of the talk, because I still felt I'm inadequate if I just talk about the matter problem. But these mm. days I'm more comfortable just talking about matter problems. Mm, that's great. Yeah. And that is kind of special. It's not often that people actually discuss you know, openly or in public academia, you know, we all talk about it, uh, you know, with other researchers and have a lot of similar gripes, but it's rarely sort of given as a recorded talk. So it was definitely pretty special. Yeah. Well, it was, it's talked about often. I just feel like is we have snapshots here and there and my thing was mostly just summarizing what people have been thinking and talked about what I've seen on social media and I cited a lot of sources. Yeah, so, yeah exactly. It's, it's, it's kept happening, but yeah, uh, some, some mm -hmm. in bigger forms, some in smaller forms. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's more like there's a lot of hot takes, uh, and thoughts, <laughs> but less structured sort of discussion. Um, and yeah, so, and the title is, you know, the unreasonably narrow path, which you've explained as being about, you know, these criteria that people, um, look at citations or specialization. And then you, the second part is how not to be miserable. 
which hopefully you <laughs> actually figured out. So yeah, what is what is your take given these sort of constraints? How did you personally sort of adapt? Uh, yeah, so it's easy. Once you pinpoint the problem, the way to get away from it is just you just flip. So everything mm. that you're doing and that's making you miserable, you just don't do that. Do something else. But of course, it's easily said and done. Um, so I think I listed a few dimensions why at least I felt miserable back then. One mm -hmm. of them was I saw everyone around me as a competitor. That was very stress inducing. If I log into Twitter and see every paper announcement as, oh my God, they're doing great. I'm falling behind. Yeah. That, that's one reason to be miserable. But a easy flip would be to see them not as a competitor, but as a potential collaborator. So, so um, I'm going to talk about this organization that we founded uh, called ML Collective, where mm -hmm. everyone can be your potential collaborator. If they're not your current collaborator, they can be a potential collaborator. Because all we um, trying to advocate is open collaboration. So people should be able to work together on everything. I think that that like that easy switch, if you realize that this person is not a competitor, but either a collaborator or a potential collaborator, I think that easy mind switch would mostly just do the job. Yeah. And I guess the reason that it's easy to perceive people as competitors is, you know, it's, there's a job market. <laughs> so they're in some sense, right. They're probably going to go for the same sort of uh, roles if you stick in research, but at the same time, um, it is ideal to just sort of see everyone, you know, be happy about progress and interesting ideas. And I don't know. Yeah. Not compare yourself to others, obviously. Yeah. If you see everything as a race is, it's very easy to mm -hmm. be disappointed in yourself. Yeah. I'm not mm -hmm. saying that I'm, I'm totally enlightened. Of course I fall in the trap very often still. I yeah. have, you know, anxiety moments where I, I see other people making progress and I feel bad about myself, but at least I know that's why, like that the source is that I'm, I'm seeing this as a race. I'm seeing others as competitors and, and, you know, there are things we can do there. Exactly. Yeah. I, this reminds me a few years ago, like two years ago, I think just as COVID was starting, I recorded and wrote this, this video and blog post about lessons I learned in grad school so far and my failures where I had a timeline where I showed all my rejected papers and all the, you know, grants and whatever I didn't get and so on. And at the time I did have a bit of this, like everyone is publishing more or getting grants. Uh, but I did have a lot of people, you know, coming up since then and, telling me they've seen it and they know my name from it. So yeah, it's, yeah. do it's, you know this, uh, this idea of failure CV is so great. Yeah. I've seen it. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> it's I such a great of, idea. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we should all make one. So the idea is that a CV just lists your accomplishments, but the failure CV lists the things that you didn't get that you tried, you didn't get, for example, mm -hmm. in a normal CV, you'd have all the accepted papers and the failure CV have all the, um, rejected papers all the like awards that you never get, you know, mm -hmm. like you reject the grants and all that is amazing. So if every one of us makes such a thing, then it's normalized. Failure is normalized, you know, 
Um, and people are naturally happier. I think in the end, it's just a normalization problem. Yeah. And I mean, failure is part of a journey and it's actually, you know, gives you more of an insight, right? In some ways. So it could be helpful. I've, I've seen one or two of them from researchers in the field, but I do think it's still something that, you know, is a little hard to actually put out there. Yeah, it should be, it should be encouraged more. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you mentioned the ML Collective as one of the things that, you know, obviously work on now and that you think addresses one of the issues with the field. Uh, so yeah, maybe you can just uh, explain how that came to be and a little bit more on how it works. Yeah. Um, so the, the talk that we just mentioned, uh, said mm-hmm. a lot of that, but basically I was personally, I was out of a job and had, had, uh, failures again, uh, of getting a job. So all those things would, would actually go on my failure CV that mm-hmm. I, I interviewed all those places and I got nothing but rejections. Um, so it was, it was turned out to be a very good space and time for me to rethink what I want to do. Um, and that's where a lot of the content from the talk had came up and I realized that there's all these problems in the field, people are unhappy. And once you realize those problems is actually very easy. You just want to create a place where people don't have to feel that way. So we started this, this community or this company, um, where basically every incentive is different from the major academics incentive mm-hmm. from the, the major industrial labs or academic labs where hopefully failures are normalized and trial and errors are normalized. People are here to just try out different things without an explicit risk. So I heard a talk by, I think it's Mark Zuckberg that said, um, one thing that's missing from success or something is that you, you have a freedom to fail. A lot of people don't have that. And it yeah. turns out to be a privilege. A lot of the time, it's not like they, they're lacking courage. It's just their life doesn't permit them to have a space to fail. Like if your family needs you to keep bringing home a salary, then you don't have a a year that you can just explore things without expecting any immediate return. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so I think like, it's kind of like that. We create a space where you can fail. Um, We are, because we're not evaluating you by your, how soon you have your next paper or how much your next paper is cited. Well, because we don't employ you. I think just by that, but that <laughs> simple change. You're a member, we support you, we don't employ you. So yeah. really you don't have to work towards any explicit goal. Yeah. Um, so yeah, once we have that thought and then it's very clear what kind of things we want to do, we want it to be a community. It's naturally a nonprofit since we're not uh, trying to employ people. So it becomes a field where we're bringing people who wanted help and people who needed help and then mash them together. Another way that I jokingly say is that it's a huge dating site where <laughs> people different expertise come in and then they form a group and they, they work on research together. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. Uh, it kind of reminds me earlier, I interviewed uh, one of the founders of Elifur AI and it's mm-hmm. in some ways similar as a sort of open source mm-hmm. collective where you can just jump on and, you, if, if it makes sense, you can join on a project and start, just start contributing. 
again, just because you want to, not for any other kind of incentive. So that's pretty yeah, interesting. Yeah. It's, it's very similar. Yes. A lot of very similar initiatives are around. So that's the thing. Like it's not, it's not, we're the only one place that people can do this. And that's mm-hmm. the beauty of doing uh, nonprofit and community work. That is, you don't have to find an edge. It's not like if I'm having the same idea as someone else, then we will fail because it's not a market where we compete. It's just yeah. the more, the better. And the outcome of a nonprofit is social impact. So actually the more people that are doing similar things as us, the bigger the social impact, then we all win. So yeah. I kind of love that. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I'll, I'll just do a short plug. Actually, The Gradient is also <laughs> a nonprofit run by volunteers <laughs> in their mm-hmm. spare time. So uh, if any listeners want to, you know, help us out, we could always use more help. Yeah. I'm sure you know, um, Andre, but but one uh, another big thing of doing nonprofits, you attract the best people. So yeah. actually, you would think that if you have money incentives, maybe better people will be drawn to it. To some extent, yes. But then mm-hmm. to another extent, if you um, remove the monetary incentive, actually people come in with the better a better incentive. Mm-hmm. Like they you know they really want to help and they really have things to contribute to the yeah. space. Yeah, there's nothing better than someone who just wants to do this for themselves or just out of Mm -hmm. internal motivation, really, uh, Mm -hmm. or because they believe in it. And yeah, that can often be missing if you're just uh, working for citations or money or whatever else. Mm Uh, and related to that, uh, also, as we mentioned, you have this, uh, reading group on classic and trends, uh, which started, I believe, uh, earlier than VML collective. Uh, so is that similar in the sense that anyone can join and you sort of try to collectively learn and, and, you know, do a sort of open reading group? Is that how it is? Yeah, so the reading group um, existed before ML Collective, but then once we started ML Collective, we just put it in because you know it's it's all done by us, so we can just put things together and call it under a different name. So now mm-hmm. it is the ML Collective reading group, but it actually exists for more than uh, the age of ML Collective. Uh, yes, it's completely open. We have a special feature that's we that that is we don't record, so it's just mm-hmm. live and live only. Because again, I don't want to do things that everyone is doing. I feel like we have too much recorded content online. I don't think mm. any living being is going to be able to consume all the content that is out there online these days. Uh, I think there's a beauty in those things that just happen and would disappear if you don't, if you're not there. Um, yeah, it's probably exactly. too, too poetic of me, but I, I, I insist to, to, to stick with this format. Um, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's open to everyone and we mm-hmm. read a paper every week. Um, we've changed the format of a bit over the years. Initially it was a group of us who would rotate to present a paper, not, not necessarily ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that, that gives it a different flavor because if the presenter is not the author, actually it's a more objective take. I kind of like that a lot, yeah. but then it's very hard to align incentives that way because it takes a long time to prepare the talk and you're not really selling your paper. So it's very less likely to get people to be willing to do that. So we switched to basically authors presenting their papers, which is very 
um, much easier to get a yes from a potential speaker. Um, and once in a while, if we have, you know, a good hearted person that wants to review others' papers, we also have that. But like these days, mostly it's authors coming, talking about their work. Yeah, I've had a few reading groups sort of die slow death just by right? virtue of people being busy. So it definitely yeah. happens. Yeah. So uh, so right now I think we converged on a on a uh, format that's most sustainable. I still mm-hmm. would love to see more diversity in terms of you know non-authors coming, um, and I, I have an open forum where people uh, nominate speakers. So it's not only selected by me to minimize the like Roseanne bias. Um, but yeah, I'm always trying to think of ways to diversify the format. So we're not just covering like one, one type of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. And we'll link this in the description, but we can also mention now you can check out mlcollective.org and it has links for things, how to do research, how to, you know, join the reading group, all of that. So if, if this sounds interesting to you, you can go over and check it out. Uh, and you know, I think I can mention one thing that I think is fun on this topic of not recording at Stanford, we have something called an AI salon and a modeled after a French, uh, uh, AI enlightenment era salons where people just collect in a coffee shop and, you know, discuss Mm -hmm. something. And there's a rule of people not using their phone or computers and there's no recording. We just discuss a topic, like we invite a speaker and we discuss like the state of research on robotics or autonomous driving. And sometimes you get some fun hot takes <laughs> because it's not <laughs> recorded. So uh, there's definite benefits to that sort of thing. Yeah. You imagine like all the best moments in your life, they're never recorded. Once mm-hmm. you're, you know, uh, under a camera or a recording device, you're just, you're self-modulating. Yeah, you know, I'm not saying it's worse, but you know, at least a lot of gems will be lost. Actually, mm-hmm. that that brings I me mean, another point. So we mentioned freedom to failure before. I think mm-hmm. this gives a space of freedom to be dumb because it's because it's not recorded. People can ask dumb questions, and that is the I don't know top of the reasons to learn is that mm-hmm. if you don't have a fear to be stupid, that's where you learn the most. At least for me. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, yeah, I guess I'm curious for a few more details. So it says your decentralized, uh, massively scaled, openly collaborative lab. So I think it's interesting, like how, how big is it? How many people are on there roughly? Mm-hmm. Obviously it's shifting and yeah. How, how yeah. much activity are you seeing now a few years into it? Yeah. Um, I'm ashamed to say that I don't really know. So it's, it's weird because, um, we want it to be, to be really decentralized. That means that mm-hmm. I don't, I don't really know everyone. Yeah. We have a few platforms and each of them, I can get a precise number of how many people are there, but the things I don't know how much they overlap. So it's going to be a range. So the maximum number will be the addition of all those platforms. Mm-hmm. And the minimum number would be the max out of those platforms, right? So yeah. I would say <laughs> for that range, so the minimum would be uh, around 4,000 mm-hmm. and the maximum would be around 6,000, but I really don't know because also one person can create multiple accounts, uh, but it's, it's in that ballpark. 
But I would say every for every single moment, um, the active like people are actively pursuing research is a much smaller number, which I really like because because um, I, I want to see this like shifting dynamics, a group that has a large base. But every single time it's only like a concentrated energy into the actual research and actual activities. So that number is probably around 100. I'm not 100 percent sure, but so a small group of people that are really committed and they come and go because they got their life got busy. A lot of them have full time job. And then another person would jump in and, you know, put the hat on and become the lead of a little project. And then once that pushes over, they also, you know, take a take a break for a while. Mm-hmm. So they, they wrote it in and out. And then that core group, I would say, is probably less or around 100. Mm-hmm. I see. Uh, and yeah, looking at your community page on the ML Collective site, you you do have uh, kind of a few options for joining. So you have the lab, which is a more traditional sort of research group where there's a lot of meetings and projects. But you also do have the open collab community. Uh, so I wonder, yeah, what is the distinction and, and why did you make these two different yeah. channels? Yeah. So, um, we might change in the future or in mm-hmm. uh, pretty soon, but we don't know. So in the, the, the first thought was we want to classify people by the level of commitment. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to allow different levels of commitment, but we want to sort of make a distinction of if you're fully committed to doing research with us versus you really just want to lurk, which is totally fine. I mean, yeah. to get into anything, of course, you need to lurk for a bit to mm-hmm. like assess if it's your thing. So that's uh, the initial idea of making a distinction between the lab, which is a fully committed, you're a researcher, you're going to do research with us. That's your, you know, num- one of the main goals of the next period of your life versus open club is just you join the discord, things are happening, you can be an observer, you can do as much as you want. Um, and the, the thinking was that people probably would first join open collab and then after a while they have made up their mind and then the, they would join the lab. Um, it didn't really go the, the way that I wanted. Oh, also, and uh, senior people, that is people that are classified as researchers say they have, uh, they, they are, they have, they're a faculty somewhere or they are industrial researcher. Um, they would just join the lab cause they are already committed not necessarily with us, but they, they, their life is centered around doing AI research. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but it didn't really quite go that, that well. So in, in, in the end, the lab like is slowly dying right now because <laughs> all those committed people, uh, I don't know, they, they're really committed, but also, and there are also lots, lots of things going on in their life. And so they would drop like, again, like the, the dynamic in the discord. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then open club is thriving much better. Mm-hmm. People, a lot of papers are coming out of that community more than the lab, which is supposed to be like the, the central engine to produce papers. So, yeah, so that's, that's the fun part of, um, doing an organization Like you have some thoughts when you initially draft it out, but then mm-hmm. as it goes, you are only an observer and you realize, oh, things are not progressing that way that I thought it would. So now mm-hmm. you have to go back and redraft. Yeah. The, the blueprint. Yeah, yeah, we've seen that at Gradient too. It's it's interesting of a sort of thing because, you know, people come in and out over time depending on where they are in life. And, you know, there's kind of a natural momentum to things where you can think on how things should go, but then somehow some things just work, some don't, and some stick around 
kind of by virtue of them working and other things, just you have to, you know, not kind of be married to your vision of how things should be, but instead kind of adapt, as you said. Yeah, yeah, like our personal life as well. I feel like we all have a design of how we want our life to be, but uh, eventually we're just we're still part of an observer. We have to see how it unfolds. Some yeah. of them is out, is in our control, but a lot of it is out of our control. So mm-hmm. it's the same. I feel like Malcolm, we created this thing, we had an idea of how it should be. It's always a little bit different from that. So we're like constantly adapting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but the concrete answer to that is um, lab will probably be deprecated uh, a little bit Mm. uh, soon and then it will just be one open space where people do research yeah and i think maybe the open collab aspect is uh, or just the general kind of community aspect is something worth noting where you know um, yeah it's worth emphasizing that the goal here isn't just to produce research uh, if you look at the uh, page on community, it's actually listed that you, you know, community building is one of the goals and it's not just to produce papers, but also develop and train rel- relevant skills for maturing into our researchers, finding kindred mm-hmm. spirits, producing research, but also giving back to society. So lots of different ways to benefit from, um, what ML Collective has, even if maybe you don't necessarily want to produce research, but just learn. Yeah, it's, it's the human. That's uh, this, the central topic that me and my, my friend Sarah Hooker recently uh, agreed on. It's like all this work we're doing is to put human on the central stage. It's all about the, the people. It's not about the output. The mm-hmm. research output is a byproduct. If you enable a person enough, they will produce great research. It's not... Mm-hmm. Um, it never works when you put the goal as purely the research output. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes me think I, I've often seen posts on Reddit or somewhere where people think, oh, yeah, it's super cool. I wonder how I can get into it. And I would say, you know, sometimes it can be seem intimidating, but definitely something like this, LFRAI or Vama Collective, you know, it's very open to people who want to sort of get a taste and just start uh, exploring the possibility of doing something like this. So it's an awesome, uh, awesome thing to consider if, if you have that as, as a potential thing you might want to try. Yeah. To me, it's like, it's a huge space that has a lot of things, but then you really have to craft your own path. You have to uh, try things and then figure out what works for you and what don't. And I also want to emphasize this. I don't think it's said often that, it's not just a success story that if you come in and then you produce your paper, that is mm-hmm. one success story, but it's also a success story of us. If you come in, try to produce a paper and didn't like it at all and decide to quit research entirely, that's a success story because we want it to be a space where you can try things and mm-hmm. then you can have a better judgment of whether you want to be a researcher or not. So that, mm-hmm. that totally serves the purpose. If you come in, try a little bit and made a concrete decision that, Research is not my thing. I like building products much more. That's, that's great. And we've had a lot of cases like that. I'm always happy to see people coming to a concrete decision for their life, whether it is in research or out of research. Mm. Exactly. And uh, you also, it also says here, you know, it's 
the goal here is to create an open, diverse, and nurturing culture instead of the more rigid structure of academia where you have to apply for PhD and get recommendation letters and a GRE score and an SAT and um, a whole bunch of stuff. So it's... it. Yeah, and, and the worst of all, you <laughs> you gather all that without knowing whether you like it or not, because you only yeah. get a taste of research like second, three, third year in when you have already, you know, done all those things and it felt such a high stake to quit or to back out. Yeah. 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 I felt, I don't know, I felt sad for a lot of people who are in grad school and struggling because they, they've just been constantly thinking, is this right for me? I don't feel this is right for me, but I'm already four years in. It just makes the most sense to finish. I was at that point and I, I believe a lot of people are at that position. Yeah, definitely. I was fortunate to have uh, a decent amount of research experience in undergrad doing like summer research internships and things instead of getting industry experience um, as most people wound up doing. And yeah, I often reflect on people who come into a PhD having not done research, having just taken classes like... <laughs> It's, it's, it's like, wow, you're really diving into something very different. And, uh, yeah, I hope that you end up liking it, but it's, it's definitely, you know, there's a lot to it that you can only find out by doing it and not observing it. Yeah. Yeah. No, not to uh, draw a parallel again to dating, but I feel it's the same thing. It's like, it's whether you allow a dating period with mm -hmm. people or you just directly jumps into marriage, right? Mm -hmm. Like it just great if you can direct jump into marriage, but there's a lot of high stake there. And maybe a lot of people don't want that. They really just want a space and time to just try out a bit before they make a decision. And that's totally fine. That should be normalized. I think before we had this, like, you know, you have to make a decision and stick with it. I mean, mm -hmm. sure. But also you should give people flexibility and freedom to, to be wrong and to try out things that didn't work mm -hmm. and, and eventually converge to something that works, hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. I think when I was applying for PhDs, PhD programs, I think, and this is common, people try to sort of figure out, okay, this is my interest. This is what I want to work on, you know, and that trying to like solve that question is so stressful. And then you have to realize that it doesn't like whatever you came up with probably isn't the actual thing where you wind up. It's just mm. like a journey and it'll take you where it takes you. And you can never predict that. Um, you know, if you're lucky, maybe you figure it out right away. But I think for most people, it's definitely a bit of a winding path. Yeah. And our mind fools ourselves as well. Like sometimes we would think, do I really like this thing? But if the thing is so high stake, I think our mind would try to, would try to convince ourselves that, yeah, you, you like this thing or like try to draw um, evidence that, it is, is leading towards a conclusion that we ourselves is that's easier for we ourselves to accept that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. So yeah, unless you have an exactly open minded space that you, you're just not coming in with any prior convictions, I think mm -hmm. it's very hard to really figure out what you like or want. Yeah. So it's, it's great that there are these, uh, you know, ML Collective is a thing that's less rigid and like it is more for exploration uh, as opposed to kind of what you have in academia. Um, and on, on the topic of it being, you know, inclusive and diverse and kind of open to people who are maybe new or 
you know, less experience and things like that, uh, maybe you can jump into your more recent work on the Eichler Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion uh, Initiative, uh, which I think is is maybe just starting, uh, or you you know are working on this yeah. year. Yeah, um, it just ended, but um, uh, so it started last year, and since uh, Eichler just ended, so the the whole effort just ended. It's not a complete mm-hmm. end. Um, we just put. Uh, and into it, but people are still there and they're still working on research. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know. Because this topic is hard. Like every time I see diversity, equity, and inclusion, of course, I feel, you know, this this frustration and anger that, you know, we need to do better than on in this topic. And also this this disappointment that I don't know, there's so much talking and so little doing. Um, be included, everyone included. It's not it's not anyone's fault. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so we had that energy last year when Crystal and I were appointed as the DEI chairs. We sort of like, this is such an important work, but so little has been done and we really want to do something different this time. So last year, that was a year ago, we just decided to just really make a change. So usually the DEI chairs are just there to sort of safeguard the conference, make sure, mm. you know, anything rising are fitting the DEI criteria. Like if we are inviting speakers, you know, are we are we inviting a diverse enough pool, pool um, or um, attendees? Are we allowing access from everyone for for everyone from different backgrounds? Mm-hmm. So, but this time we really are we're determining to do something entirely different. So we started the whole program of attracting people from diverse backgrounds and then helping them write proposals and give them compute assistance to run experiments, sort of like help them a little step on the way to finally towards a submission. So that kind of program is, it's actually just like a replica of ML Collective because mm-hmm. I, I have very little ideas. I have one idea, so I can see easier <laughs> in my different roles. And, I mean, um, if it's a good idea, you know, it work once. <laughs> Not yeah. sure it's good. It's, it's one idea. So yeah, I, I, I work at Google now. I'm also just, <laughs> just using the same idea at, at various workplaces. Um, so yeah, it's like a mini miniature um, ML Collective being carried out within eight months period um, from last summer to this year's iClear, which was um, in April. And yeah, and we helped um, a few people publish. By saying we helped as in like they helped themselves the most, but we, I think this program probably like gave them initial force into making that paper possible. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it is a little more structured in terms of having dates and phases mm-hmm. and, and the goal yeah. being ostensibly to submit. I like mm-hmm. that phase one is idea governing and proposal writing with sort of an open mm-hmm. Slack. And it's it's really, you know, a dating period, as you said. Yeah, of, of I know. People. So <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, it's totally dating. Yeah. I thought it's yeah. inappropriate to, to keep saying it's dating, but then I'm in this uh, founder's world here in yeah. Bay Area. So founders say dating a lot. They call it co-founder dating, right? When yeah, they're trying yeah, to start exactly. a company, they try to find a co-founder. So I guess we could just use it. Let's, let's just yeah. make it normal to use it in research that is is collaborator dating. Yes, collaborate dating. I think that's a good <laughs> phrase. <laughs> and it is let's something make it that, stick. Yeah, I've had it. I've done this myself, you know, if I want to work on a team it's it's a skill you need to develop so uh, yeah maybe and, and it's yeah. the right expectation to set that it doesn't always work out yeah yeah <laughs> yeah 
but it doesn't matter. I just have to keep trying until the right one comes along. Exactly. And then, yeah. So one thing that's, um, in this more structured approach, you also have mentorship matching and sort of some guidance for newer researchers from maybe more experienced people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so uh, it's just ended and it sounds like maybe this new structure was generally successful and you think this might be worth replicating? Yeah. Uh because it's our first time doing it, so it's hard to say if it's successful or not. Since, um, as we know, in research, you need a benchmark, you need a baseline to <laughs> to, to say if your method is working. Yeah. Yeah. We had larger than zero submissions, so I guess that's a success. It's not negative. Um, yeah, I yeah. hope people generally had a good experience. Although, I don't know, negative experience is also part of the experience. Mm-hmm. I feel like we cannot just keep painting this rosy picture of, you know, research is just your having this great brainstorm um, sessions with a collaborator and nothing ever went wrong. Because mm-hmm. that's also the false image. So I'm sure yeah. there are also frustrations and chaos in this program. Um, mm-hmm. I've heard from some people, but I try to tell them it's totally normal. This is just like a compressed PhD for you. And yeah. in PhD, things go up and down and your collaborator might just drop you and they might start working with someone else. I don't know. It's just yeah. all these are to be expected. But I hope overall the experience was net positive if we average everyone's. And we did have around 15 like papers submitted and published. Um, I think that's that's great achievement. Yeah, it sounds pretty successful to me. Uh, yeah, and, and, I, and all uh, of them, yeah. oh, let me say, all of them come from underrepresented researchers or um, first-time submitters. So we mm-hmm. only accept those who either never published at ACLIA before or similar conference or come from a really underprivileged or underrepresented background. Mm. So, so this is an like, effort just, just for them. Yeah, it's it sounds very cool. And uh, again, I think anyone who, you know, you think you might relate to this kind of thing. Uh, I assume this is going to repeat, hopefully. So, uh. so, um, so the thing is we, we did it as the DEI chairs and uh-huh. we didn't know who's, you know, if future DEI chairs going to carry on with this effort. So when that, when the actually happened, we said, oh, uh, so we probably can only see you here and not, not continue. Uh, but just, just as it happened, Crystal and I are, were re-invited as the DI chairs for next year and both of us just accepted. So I think we're going to do it again next year. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. 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 And it's very exciting. Next year is going to be, um, actually it's going to be in Rwanda. Mm. So it'll be really fun. I think this program will still majorly be remote, but at mm-hmm. least towards the end, maybe everyone can gather in Africa and then have a celebration there in person. Hopefully fingers crossed. Yeah, and that's some uh, more incentive to actually go through with it. <laughs> when a conference is somewhere fun like Japan or Corals in New Zealand, mm-hmm. there's definitely a little more motivation to make it happen. Yeah, yeah. Turns out we still value seeing people's faces. Yeah. Despite that, it's the same. It's just pixels, but somehow we still want to see it 3D. I've seen so many Twitter posts of people being like, my first in-person conference in X, (laughs) I'm so happy. (laughs) This is so great. Yeah. 
We still haven't yeah. figured out the metaverse, it seems like. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why. I think it might be because we also feel like the cameras on me that is like self-modulating the same way that a recorded talk is. Even even yeah. if you know it's not recorded, it's just feel like someone's watching you. It yeah. cannot be as natural as you are with pers- with people. Yeah, exactly. Um, then jumping uh, back a bit, another thing you touched on in this um, talk you had was one of the issues with uh, research is generally you expected to be a bit narrow, like specialize in one niche. Uh, you know, all your papers kind of are related somehow. And I think it's interesting in your case, one thing you actually explicitly discuss is that you are more of a generalist in neural network learning. So you have, you know, things on more theoretical side, more applied side, kind of uh, sciences, things like that, um, which is pretty impressive, just the <laughs> amount of things you cover. Um, so, yeah, uh, how, you know, I guess this is what, you like as a terminal as a kind of your approach uh and uh how do, how have you wound up touching on all these topics is it just your curiosity guiding you uh yeah again i don't feel like it's entirely my choice uh of course a lot of that is attributed to my collaborators uh so a lot of those papers i co-authored was jason yosinski who's also the co-founder of ml collective he's a very mm. curious person <laughs> he also just keeps switching <laughs> Um, if I want to place any blame, he, he's to take the blame. He keeps <laughs> switching. So I have to follow, the, follow uh-huh. suit. Um, but I also, I don't know. I, I'm a curious person. I don't, I don't want to pigeonhole myself to be, you know, I don't know, the, the vision person or the language model person. I kind of want mm. to stay curious in a lot of topics. But by definition, there's also, of course, downside of it Um, by covering a wide range. That means that I cannot go very deep, probably on each of the topics. I would Mm -hmm. not be probably the top one expert in any of the small topics. But the upside is I I know most of the things. And right now, my job as the uh, executive director of ML Collective is perfect because my job is just to connect you to different people that I know who are going in depth for experts. Mm-hmm. So any new member coming in and maybe they're interested in, I don't know, federated learning and I can say, Oh, I know that person in federated learning quest on a lot. So let me connect you to mm-hmm. yeah, in a dating space. Again, a dating analogy, I'm the matchmaker and I have to stay <laughs> a journalist to be a matchmaker, right? I have to yeah, know a lot of yeah. people and I have to roughly know what they, what they do. Right. So yeah, it worked out great, but, um, I don't think it would work out for everyone. We're still mm-hmm. living in society that's hyper specialized and we're going to go more and more into that. I think in the future yeah. as, um, nowadays, I think training a language model, there's so many hidden knowledge in it. I think even there's not even a specialized job co- called language model trainers is like probably like a very small engineering aspect to it that mm-hmm. has, has to have a, a person that has the full knowledge of it. That's super, super specialize. I think we're going to go more and more into that because nowadays the biggest advancing AI are just with such a scale, mm-hmm. both in data and model, but also in teams. You see mm-hmm. this huge scale up of teams under, um, behind every project. And that just means that each person is probably in charge of a very, very small field that has so much condensed knowledge. 
So we're going to see more of that. Um, but I don't know. I, I still want to encourage people to be more of a generalist, but I, it's going to be harder for them to um, prevail in, in terms of career because I think that's where the career options are going. Yeah, no, I've seen some some concern on Twitter as well. I I'm on Twitter a lot apparently. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Me too. Someone, yeah, that like uh, you know, it seems like more and more of the most impactful work is being done in these huge groups with millions of dollars behind it. You know, can can I do much as a individual researcher? And my response was, you know, I do think there's still a lot of sort of investigation, insight, et cetera, you know, beyond this giant sort of huge efforts to just build something and experiment. I do think there's a lot of ambiguity and a lot of these things just create more questions than they answer. So yeah, personally, I, I still hold on to this belief that there's a need for you know, uh, smaller scale research, but maybe I'm just being optimistic. Um, yeah, I, I can see the biggest tide is this large scale, you know, big concentrated effort kind of research, but a big tide, the existence of, existence of a big tide doesn't mean that small ties going wrong, different directions are not allowed. I think mm -hmm. you can still make your way out doing something different. I mean, I did. I'm so different from the rest of the research group, but um, I feel like I, I found myself like a very comfort position right now. I'm just using, making use of my general ability to to do my job. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I don't know what to what suggestions to give to people who are just entering. Should they start small? Should they try to join a big team? I mean, both are both are valid. Uh, one do require lots of privilege though. Like you have to be accepted by a place like OpenAI, a place that can concentrate a large effort behind one project to be able to do that. But another path is more open. You can, if you're an individual uh, researcher, you can just start right away. So it depends on what opportunities you found yourself in yeah. and yeah, choose your own path, but at least don't be um, so disappointed that thinking that only one path can prevail and lead to success all paths leads to success in a way. Yeah, no, it exactly. I think, uh, looking back at my life and sort of thinking about it, I often think, and I've told this to some people that especially early on kind of designing or prioritizing the ability to explore and try different things is something you will be happy to do because, um, be happy about later because a, you will figure out what you want, but B later on, it gets harder and harder. Uh, so I recently talked to, you know, an undergrad who was just starting out at Stanford and he wanted to know exactly, you know, what areas to focus on. And I think it, yeah, it's just like, being able to explore and, and just try stuff is very valuable. Yeah. And cause eventually the most crucial ability is to, to be able to learn, right? I think that the most undervalued, um, capability of a person is you, if you can throw him or her into any small field and it can quickly, he, uh, they can quickly give you a literature survey of that small hmm. area of research. So that just means the ability to learn should 
um, outweigh the like the knowledge of a small field. If you're able to switch, that means that you can you can learn to learn like in the meta learning <laughs> framework of <laughs> learning. It's, it's like that. You want to be a meta learning agent, not not just one specialized image classifier. Yeah, and and that's really you know the objective of uh, academic education, at least ideally. Of you're not going to remember all the stuff you learn about. I remember like two percent <laughs> of my CS education. You know mm-hmm. all, all of these different things, but just yeah, you know you have you can to quickly yeah you can quickly uh, adopt a new thing. Right, that's yeah. the the thing you're better. And I think as as AI gets better, I think AI will be really good at any specialized task. So let's not compete with AI in, on that ground. <laughs> let's mm-hmm. be meta learner because I think meta learning might be where humans still beat AI better. <laughs> so let's not make ourselves specialized because from one angle, if you make yourself that way, you will lose to future AI agents because they are so much better <laughs> than memorizing things and being super specialized in recognizing dog breeds and all that. Uh-huh. That's an interesting perspective. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just to keep yourself you know, safe from um, having AI take over your job is to be a generalist. Mm. Yeah, learn to be creative. And uh, not yeah, just make yourself already, an existing <laughs> distribution. Yeah. Yeah, but AI is already pretty creative, so I don't know what to do about that. <laughs> according to uh, Dali. According to Dali, I have a lot of thoughts on that, but that's <laughs> for another day. Um, mm. So I don't know. Maybe this is a weird question, but since you have such a large body of work, I know I have some of my papers that I'm most proud of, and. Uh, Basically, my favorite. So that's maybe a bit unkind, but I wonder if you have any sort of favorite papers or papers where you learned the most or anything that you'd like to talk about. Papers I learned the most um, of my own or of others? Uh, yeah, the, the papers you've done. Are there any that you are most mm-hmm. fond of, I guess? Yeah, I feel the thing is, um, it's it's not really about the topic, but like the people that I worked on with, mm-hmm. uh, worked with on that project. It's like people asking where where's your uh, most favorite travel destination. Like if I have gone to a few places, and then I realize, oh, it's never the exact destination. They're all fun to various extent, but then it's really like the people that you have gone with to that destination. And also when that project has come about in your life, like what, mm. what period of life were you? Um, so I remember most the papers where I'm just learning a lot because I'm just at the starting point of my research life. It's like um, a model, just like just being initialized and just started training and the loss dropped so much. <laughs> so that papers that's, that's produced in that period of my life are just most memorable because I just learned such a big chunk of knowledge from it. So, so that would be the, I think the first paper ever that we published uh, once we mm. joined Uber AI uh, intrinsic dimension. So I think it's just has a really um, special place in my heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was like, um, Jason and I just started the team and we were finally able to hire one intern. <laughs> so yeah. And then we had that intrinsic dimension paper. So that's measuring, um, the difficulty of a problem combined with a model and by looking from the lost landscape point of view and measuring how many dimension are actually needed to solve the problem within that lost landscape. 
I think totally changed my view and maybe a lot of other people's view of looking at problem difficulties. Mm-hmm. Just like rethinking what are we, what we're doing when we are classifying It's actually, we're solving um, different levels of difficulties of a problem. And essentially we are just a point traversing the lost landscape, hoping that we hit a solution and how many dimensions we need to hit that dimension really just says how difficult this problem is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's often, you know, people say still that, we don't understand anything about deep learning. And I think these kinds of works do give me hope that it is possible to understand kind of more empirically or theoretically um, some properties of machine learning, deep learning. So here you did explore like, can you measure the difficulty of a task in some mathematical way? And I, I think I remember this paper actually when it came out because I thought it was very, very neat to actually address this particular thing where you don't just put together a data set and then guess at things you might actually be able to understand at, a, at this kind of level, what you're trying to do. Yeah. And I think it's the first, the kind of paper that I like is, it's an idea that you can apply anywhere. So basically any parametric model, you can measure intrinsic dimension in the paper itself. We, we connected dots from computer vision to RL to like other fields. I don't think many papers do that back then, back then sort of there's like computer vision, people doing computer vision things, RL doing RL things. There's never like an effort of connecting the two. So we did that with intrinsic dimension. We later did that with CordConf as well. So for every mm. paper, we try to make it really broad. It's, it's a concept that you can apply hopefully everywhere. And we will test a few different domains um, to prove that. But I really like the kind of work that are non-narrow, <laughs> like, like mm. my own life, like generalists. Right? I like methods that are more of a generalist. Yeah. Um, some of these works you have are a little more... Um, you know, a little narrow, but I think still very cool. Like natural adversarial <laughs> objects is quite a bit of fun of just seeing where, uh, object detection fails and possibly funny mm. ways. Uh, that's always fun to see. Yeah. Those are, um, right. So I forgot to mention one point of why I can, uh, broaden the topic of my published work so much is because I, I work with such a big pool of people. So mm-hmm. they come from different expertise, like the, the now paper, natural adversarial object paper is a bunch of people from scale AI, which is the mm. data labeling company. So of course they have access to very interesting data and they're the job is just looking at those data so much that they form this insight of, oh, can we pick naturally adversarial like um, images that make a, a normal classifier fail? So yeah, the insights all come from them. And um, so that's like sort of how you can widen your horizon by just open your eyes and calendar to people from different backgrounds. Mm, exactly. Well, um, yeah, we'll link to a few more of these papers. I think your most recent ones are in particular, uh, pretty cool and generalist. Uh, so I'll have to read some of that on my free time. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, but let's finish up the same way we usually finish up, which is to go outside of AI and t- sort of talk about, I don't know, you as a human being to more, more of an extent. So outside of AI, um, I know you also are a big fan of writing. You have uh, a blog post 
about writing. So uh, yeah, I'm curious, I guess, what drove you to start and what drives you to keep doing it alongside research? Um, <laughs> uh, so I think, I don't know. I feel like when I first came to the United States and I run into all those kids with like lots of talents, they mm -hmm. all like learned some music instrument from, from when they were little. Mm -hmm. I just felt hugely incompetent because I never had that training. So I came from a very uh, third world country where we didn't have resource to train our kids to learn various things. Our, the only way that we trained our kids is just to be good at exams. So you get into a good college, so your future is brighter. So all my childhood was just, just learning to excel at exams. And I came here and everyone knows something. And then it's like already too late for me to keep pick up anything that requires years of learning and requires mm -hmm. you to start when you were a toddler. Maybe, at least that's my impression. So I picked something that I sort of already know how to do, that is reading and writing, because um, at least like we started doing that as part of our learning to excel at exam quest from early on. I think that's why I picked it, because I, I, I really think that I have no chance of picking anything else that would make it uh, a, a talent of mine or a hobby of mine. But it also just fits my interest really well. I like reading. I think um, other things goes along, right? If you are a composer, you have to like listening to music in the mm -hmm. first place. So if you're a writer, you have to like reading other people's writing a lot. So that I had since I was little. My almost only hobby, I think, as a child was reading books. Ah. So it's so easy. You don't you don't have to train your a different talent to be able to do that. Anyone can just open a book and read. So I think it starts from there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I can relate to this sort of starting late uh, thing where <laughs> I've written a lot of you know blog posts, things like that, or I did. Mm -hmm. But I do have a lot of ideas for more fiction type writing. And, mm -hmm. you know, I can't never find the time, but also every time I think about it, it's just like, can I actually do it? <laughs> or is it just going to be <laughs> terrible? Uh, so I keep wanting to start, but then it's always, you know, in the horizon. One day I'll actually do it. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I haven't uh, ventured into fiction yet. And of course it's every writer's dream to have, you know, eventually produce a, a fiction book. Um, and even my existing writing, I don't know. I still, they're just out there. I haven't really tried to make them better and then have them really published somewhere. Maybe I should. So there's mm -hmm. all those things that I think I, maybe I should do, but I never really got around to doing. So mm -hmm. I relate to that. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of that, I guess, uh, if you have a lot of interests. Um, yeah. And I, I've been asked, I think at some point, like how I started writing on, on how I like, someone was like, I, I don't want to start because it, I can't get an audience. And I remember when I started, it was just like a word, WordPress blog. Mm -hmm. And I very much came in with expectations that no one will read it. <laughs> Maybe family or some friends, but that's it. Like five mm -hmm. people. And that's a very liberating kind of approach. I would say to just like do something because you want to do it. Maybe sometimes you'll do something that people enjoy, but definitely the way to start is just for yourself. And then hopefully you enjoy it and then you just keep doing it. Um, so I would definitely suggest yeah. that. Yeah. 
yeah, intrinsic motivation that connects back to the ML collective idea. People mm. come in, hopefully not for any external um, incentives, but just they really, they would really enjoy the work. Yeah. Yeah. And I always love when, when researchers list something like I have this set of essays or poems or music reviews or, or a SoundCloud. To me, it's always exciting to see <laughs> But it's not just a regular academic website with publications. There's also this additional, um, mm-hmm. bit of creativity that you do yeah, share as a bit of a touch to them as a human. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I also think this is interesting. I'd like to hear about this where one of your blog posts, you describe this effort you undertook of recording the audio of you reading through uh, what at that point was your favorite book, Travels of Charlie. Wow, you really dug deep. I don't think many people know about that that effort. Oh my God. I'm you know, I, I, I like to, you know, just jump through. I happened upon it, let's say. I, I wasn't, I'm not always that well prepared. But um, yeah, so this, to describe it is you... Uh, posted on your site uh, as part of a blog post, these audio files of you reading, you know, narrating a book, uh, Mm -hmm. which I found really fun because, um, (laughs) well, I, there's actually a Reddit, uh, on Reddit, a thing, a subreddit Mm -hmm. of people doing this, like reading books, recording themselves, reading books. Yeah. And I actually played around with it. I I did that because I don't know, it's, it's an interesting sort of creative thing to try and, and do yeah. a performance. Yeah, I would say it's more meditative than creative. You're just reading, but then you get really deep into it. And of course, you're trying to not make a mistake when you read, which was mm-hmm. hard for me. I didn't know that. Like in the beginning of this episode um, podcast, you were reading my bios. Like, this is so hard. I don't think I can do that. <laughs> just reading something and not making a mistake, especially yeah. something you didn't write. Yeah. Uh, so, so that was part of that. It's like, it's, it's a challenge for me. And mm-hmm. it's going to be so meditative because I have to be really concentrated. It's like any art project that you have to, like puzzles, that you have to yeah. spend a lot of time in full focus. Yeah, it's. I would say it's creative in the sense of, you know, you want to channel the book to some mm-hmm. extent. So it's it's a performance, mm-hmm. uh, even if you don't focus on that aspect. So sort of intrinsic, intrins- intrinsically, that's what it winds up being. So okay. I don't know. Yeah. I think no, I think no, that's <laughs> Also, now you make me feel bad because I never finished it. I should go back to it. <laughs> I got this microphone for that project, by the way, oh, which okay. I'm now using to record this podcast. Uh, and it was a 2020 project, which made a lot of sense because we had nothing to do. We yeah. all were in a lockdown. I feel like I, I need to pick up something to do. And that hmm. evolves just myself and not another human being. Um Yeah. And now I just, yeah, I have to get back to it. I have to finish the book. I'm maybe like one fifth in or something. Oh, well, you know, now you can go check out that subreddit. <laughs> Maybe share it to more people. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, that's the idea. Like for anything, you need a collective to do it. Yeah. Because yeah. you have more of a peer pressure. Uh, and then you got like a little tiny bit intimidated by how well other people are doing it, but more serving as a driving force for you to do better. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think I, the, the reason I dropped it, it was like I felt a little lonely. Um, mm. and I've, I've no idea if people are listening, 
again, we didn't, we don't have to need that to start something. But I think at some point it was like, does it really matter? Uh, yeah. And of course my life got busy. It does make it more fun for sure. And sort of rewarding if it reaches people ultimately and, you know, um, touches on other people. Um, mm. But also as someone with arguably too many side projects, I've learned that <laughs> you have to just let things end at some point. Uh, yeah. Just, and not sort of not consider that a failure of like, you did something, maybe you didn't finish, mm. maybe it didn't work, but you know, when you try a lot of these side things, uh, that is kind of inevitable in my experience. Yeah. Although for this one, I did enjoy it very much. There's not a, a very obvious reason to end. I think I just got busy and it helped me because I um, recently I've been going to lots of open mic things mm. in San Francisco because there are lots of them. Usually I'm just an observer because I have no talent. Again, I, you know, I write, but that's not a thing that you can bring to open mic. So usually people perform music and a little bit of play on stage and I'm just there listening and observing and admiring. But mm -hmm. then because I think because I, I did that and now also I'm more, I think I'm a braver person. So on the recent one, I actually got on stage and, and read something. Mm. So I think because of that, I got, I got more confidence or I, I felt like I can do something. So that actually helped for mm. me to open up myself a bit more. That's great. Yeah. I guess we'll, we'll link this blog post. And if anyone's interested in <laughs> hearing this book travels with Charlie, which seems very sort of uh, calming. Yeah. It's a travelogue. So I think it's a very yeah. sort of, it's still, still my favorite book. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Uh, we'll link to it and maybe you'll get some listeners. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, I think on that note, we can finish up. It was really interesting to hear about all these perspectives of yours and journey and ML collective and writing. So thank you for joining us once again. Oh, thank you for having me. So much fun. I haven't done podcasts for a while and mm. I forgot how much fun it is. Yeah. You know, I initially I was hesitant on doing a podcast because there's a, a, already like a bunch, but honestly, it's mm. just every time it's so fun because I just get to talk to someone. <laughs> I take your school and, you know, find out about a research and sort of experience and things. Yeah. So from a purely selfish point of view, it's it's actually a lot of fun. Yeah, but you can't uh, just be the host, though. I think I should interview you at some point. Mm. So I have a reading group. You can come. And, and the reading group that I do it is, um, I try to describe it as, is a mix between mm. a presentation and a conversation. Because I, I interrupt the speaker a lot and ask lots of questions during their presentation. So it's kind of like an interview, but there's a, there's a topic. There's their slides. But still, yeah, I should, I should interview you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we can make it happen. Uh, but yeah, let's do my outro speech again. This is a great podcast. We don't have, we don't have reviews on anywhere with people actually giving us feedback. So if you're a listener and you like this, maybe you can go out to Apple podcasts and do a little write up, uh, would definitely be exciting. And otherwise, you know, do the usual things, share with friends and, uh, you know, on Twitter where a lot of AI researchers are apparently. And uh, otherwise, yeah, thanks for listening and keep listening for future episodes. <laughs>